Well, good afternoon, everyone, and happy Friday on this absolutely beautiful day. So glad you could join us for this month's Fireside Chat. I'm Lisa Stearns. I'm here with Dr. Tim Cross, our Senior Vice President. We'll be updating you on COVID-19 cases within the university, the institute, and across the state, and be sharing some additional institute news. So just a couple of reminders. Remember to keep your audio muted so everyone can hear the conversation. If you have questions, please use the chat function on Zoom. You can post those publicly, but you can also send them privately to me. A recording of this session is being made and will be posted to the UTIA coronavirus website. And of course, you can find that link on our homepage at utia.tennessee.edu. So Tim, let's get started. How does the case count currently look for the university and the institute? We need your audio. <laughs> it might've been the best fireside chat ever if you'd left me on mute. Uh, <laughs> well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, good to be together again. And uh, as Lisa said, uh, great to have a nice sunny day and hopefully a nice sunny weekend ahead of us. Uh, I hope everyone has some time to enjoy it. Uh, I think we have some, some good news to share. Uh, you know, I, I'm, uh, not going to announce the end of the pandemic, unfortunately, but uh, at least we have some positive things to talk about this afternoon. So, so we'll jump right into it here and, uh, and really work to get to uh, a few questions that I know we already have and any others that, that might uh, come from, from our audience today as well. So let me uh, bring up our uh, COVID data to run through uh, as usual and kind of give you a summary of uh, where we're at. You can see that, and uh, this this chart is looking a lot better. Uh, it's not quite where I'd like to see it, but it sure uh, has gone the right direction for the last several months. So across the university, in terms of active positive cases, we're at very low numbers for both students and employees, and that's certainly good news. And as of today, uh, UTK, and, and I, I'm sorry, these don't include the UTI numbers, which we'll see shortly. But at UTK, uh, six positive cases among employees and 32 positive cases among students. And contrast that to uh, this point in the semester last fall when we were still in the hundreds. Uh, you can see we've made a significant amount of progress and certainly uh, we're seeing cases trend in the right direction. And that uh, shows up in terms of uh, the number of students and employees that are currently in isolation as well with uh, currently uh, 43 employees and 183 students. And you can see really this has been quite flat uh, for the entire uh, uh, 2021 calendar year. So really glad to see that. And again, a big contrast to where we were with numbers in the thousands uh, uh, early last fall. So great, great news in that regard. 
here in the Institute, uh, you know, we have small, smaller numbers. So maybe some of the changes look more dramatic uh, than they really should. But as of today, we have four active positive cases across the Institute of Agriculture. Uh, that's actually up a little bit from uh, February. So we certainly, you know, keep an eye on that. But again, compared to uh, November, December, and January, uh, much lower numbers and, and uh, much preferred uh, trajectory in terms of the cases that we see among our Institute employees. And uh, isolations, a very similar story once again, uh, decreased uh, to about 10 today, uh, employees who are in isolation. Uh, and again, that's about a third of what we saw uh, early in the year and much closer to the numbers that we were experiencing last summer. So we're doing uh, very good uh, across campus and across the state. And nationally, uh, we're, we're staying with the, the trend there as well. You see a significant decline ever since the first of the year. A bit of a flattening, uh, if you will, for the past uh, week or so. I know uh, if, if you've been listening to the radio or television or, or uh, getting information from the web, you've probably heard several references uh, to concerns about the potential impacts of new variants. Thus far, it, it doesn't seem that we've had dramatic impacts, but I, I certainly think we need to, to continue to monitor our cases closely uh, and uh, see if there are changes uh, in, in any way. Here in Tennessee, we're seeing, again, the, the same basic pattern with a significant decline since the first of the year, and then a bit of a flattening of the curve, uh, which again is good, but we're still seeing uh, anywhere between uh, 600 and 1,000, uh, I'm sorry, close to 2,000 new cases per day. So we're, as I said, we, we're certainly not ready to proclaim the pandemic is over, but we're at much lower levels and much more manageable levels uh, of cases than we were uh, a few months ago. And I thought we ought to take a look at how we're doing in terms of vaccinations. Uh, last month, when uh, this tool first became available, uh, I reported to you then that uh, in early February, we had vaccinated approximately 7% of the population. And you can see today we're almost double that at 13.6% of the population where individual, and that reflects individuals who have received at least one dose uh, of the vaccine. So we're, we're making good progress on vaccinations as well. Uh, these numbers, uh, there's a lot of numbers here, but, but what I take from it is that we've uh, reported uh, 1.5 million vaccinations in a state with uh, uh, 6 million plus people. Uh, the numbers seem to make some sense there. We're almost to 15% of the population. And the other uh, positive news is that the number of vaccines being administered daily has continued to increase, uh, now up over 10,000 uh, vaccinations per day. Uh, we, we've heard uh, that uh, we're moving into risk-based phase 1C next week across the state. So that's good news as well. That uh, makes uh, many more individuals eligible for vaccinations uh, statewide too. So I'll stop right there. Uh, that uh, hopefully summarizes uh, where we're at in terms of our COVID cases and uh, a quick summary of, of the state's experience with regard to vaccinations as well. Remember there's all that detail is available uh, through uh, the website, uh, both at, at the University of Tennessee Institute of Agriculture website, as well as links to the state website. So 
you'd like to go see just a little more detail for yourself, uh, those, those links are available. So I'll stop right there with, uh, with sort of an update on our status, Lisa. So great, Tim. So based on some of these numbers that you shared, um, are there any changes in guidance for our employees about how we handle uh, workplace return or any other um, items? I told someone a little earlier today, I feel like a, a bit of a broken record, but at this point, we're gonna carry on as we have been the past several months, no major changes. Uh, we're gonna continue to, to keep our offices open, continue to stagger our workforce or rotate uh, our staffing so that we don't have everyone uh, in the office simultaneously, uh, encourage our supervisors to continue to work with re uh, employees so that uh, some can work remotely and employees uh, would, would ask that you continue to keep your supervisor informed about your uh, schedule, your plans, make sure we know what we're doing so that uh, in our offices, we're continuing to deliver uh, education in the classroom, we're continuing to do research in our labs and we're continuing to serve uh, extension clients. And finally, we're, we're continuing to serve uh, clinical patients as we need to, uh, but let's make sure we all know what one another is doing. And, and then secondly, uh, I'd encourage everyone to track the progress of vaccinations and vaccine availability in your location, whether that be county or here on campus. Uh, contact uh, your county health department when vaccine becomes available. Or now you can also uh, explore uh, vaccine availability with private pharmacies as well. And when you meet the age-based or risk-based vaccination criteria, would certainly encourage uh, that you strongly consider getting vaccinated uh, and take advantage of that uh, as soon as you can. So that's really our guidance for today. I know some of you are probably thinking, well, is this gonna you know, go on like this forever? I also think uh, in the next few weeks, we're gonna start to revisit the idea of transitioning to a higher level of staffing, because if uh, we continue to see a low number of cases and, and ideally even a a lower number of cases, then it's time we start to think about transitioning uh, to a higher level of staffing in our offices, more face-to-face -face, uh, uh, opportunities, uh, whether it be for uh, classroom instruction or uh, extension program delivery or research. So our administrative team will, will start to giving some thought to that with the idea at this point that we would uh, hope to scale up a little more sometime this summer uh, that's a long period of time. I'm not going to get any more specific than that because we still need to see progress on vaccinations and progress on the reduction of cases. But, uh, you know, it seems like we're getting closer and closer to that light at the end of the tunnel. And we certainly don't want to wake up one day and realize we need to, to change our status and yet we don't have any plans to do so. So our, our admin team will start giving that some thought and probably share just a little bit more with you next month uh, about that. And between now and then, if conditions change significantly, as usual, we would uh, schedule an additional fireside chat and get out a statewide message as well. Great, well, thanks for that, Tim. And as we all know, um, even in a pandemic, the work goes on. So any other news from the Institute that you'd like to share today? Yeah, one, uh, one uh, item that comes immediately to mind uh, is that we have a new dean amongst uh, our administrative team on board and with us today. And I'm really pleased to welcome Dr. Ashley Stokes as our dean for UT Extension. 
Uh, today, she's wrapping up her second week since joining the Institute. So she's an experienced veteran already. Uh, Dr. Stokes, I uh, know you've seen some of her credentials. Just as a reminder, uh, she comes to us from Colorado State University, where she served as Deputy Director for Extension and also a Vice President uh, for the uh, Colorado State University in an outreach and engagement capacity. Uh, prior to that, she had Extension experience out at the University of Hawaii as well. Uh, we've been together at a couple of uh, uh, meetings and events already in the past couple of weeks, and I can tell you she's off to a good start. Uh, and I can also tell you that she and Dr. Sensiman are working really well together during this time of transition. And uh, so while I'm uh, introducing Dr. Stokes, I'm also going to once again thank Dr. Sensiman for his uh, excellent leadership in getting us to this point. So. I think what I'd like to do is ask Dr. Stokes if she'd like to uh, just uh, say a few words. That way everyone uh, can, can get a chance to see her and meet her virtually at least. Those of you in extension may have already had a chance to, to get acquainted with her through her y'all call, which took place last week. But for the rest of the Institute, uh, at least you'll have a name to go with the face. So Dr. Stokes, let me turn it over to you uh, to share a few remarks. Hey, great. Well, thank you so much. and. Thank you so much for the warm welcome. Um, it, it's really been amazing to be able to connect. Uh, there have been you know, a lot of enthusiasm for me to be able to join the Institute and to join UT Extension as the Dean. And, uh, and it's been fantastic already. Uh, my learning curve is very steep, but it's, it's been wonderful. I would also like to thank Dr. Sensman. He's been absolutely tremendous through this transition and uh, working with me and providing me with a, a lot of insight that I really do appreciate and um, just really been fantastic. Um, and so I, um, as just a little bit of background, um, I, uh, I'm a veterinarian is my background and then uh, became an extension specialist as a veterinarian, but I had a three-way split. So I had teaching research and extension on my plate. And so really working to blend those and bring those together. So they complemented each other is something that as a young faculty member, I had to figure out. And so just being a part of this institute and the structure and how um, we're really well poised to work well and collaborate together is something that uh, I'm really excited about. And so um, a lot of strategic planning work going on for me right now with both system and uh, campus, and then we'll be getting back into that for extension. I've been getting out already. And, uh, and so, and then being able to just really work with the teams here and have fantastic teams. So thank you for letting me say hello. Um, I'm absolutely thrilled to be here and uh, I'm looking forward to working with everyone. Great, thanks so much, Ashley. Wonderful, thanks, Ashley. Um, and we also have quite a bit of uh, building happening around the Knoxville campus. Uh, Tim, can you update us? on this and the timeline for the new ESRB building. Yeah, I will. Uh, we've got a couple of major projects and I've, I've mentioned them a time or two this spring, but I think uh, we're really finally at a point where you're gonna see some major uh, progress on the new science building. So let me back up though and just say, work continues on the Teaching and Learning Center uh, addition for the Veterinary Medical Center. So that's good news. Uh, looks like uh, we're almost done with the the uh, infrastructure and utilities work out front. And that hopefully means we're gonna start to see things come up out of the ground uh, for the uh, veterinary edition. So making progress there. 
As far as the, the new science building, uh, the Energy and Environmental Science Research Building, as it's formally described, uh, we have uh, moved completely now into the Third Creek Building, and that means Ellington Plant Sciences is now vacant, uh, and demolition is scheduled to begin uh, with uh, Hollingsworth Auditorium coming down first on the morning of March 15th. So we've had a few delays in getting things finalized, had to do with some contract issues with the contractor, but uh, everything's in place. So uh, starting the morning of March 15th, uh, we'll, we'll probably see uh, some demolition taking place. And that, uh, as I thought about that happening, uh, I, uh, and, and others on our team thought about that as well, we wanted to have a way to keep everyone a little better informed about uh, progress and about activities taking place with these projects, especially those of you across the state, you hear us talking about these things and you probably wonder what in the world we're referring to or, or what it really looks like. So I'm, I'm really uh, excited that uh, our uh, marketing communications team working with our IT group, working with Steve Gloffenheim, our facilities director, has developed a new website and uh, it's going to Hopefully keep everyone a little better informed about all our capital construction and capital maintenance projects. Uh, at any point in time, we've generally got 20 to 25 different projects going on uh, throughout the Institute, and many of them are off campus, but we've, of course, got these major projects on campus. So we've, we've got this new website. I believe it's live today, uh, and maybe Lisa could share the URL in the chat. Meantime, I thought I might even uh, get bold and, and creative and uh, show you what it looks like. Uh, I'm excited about it because I think it will be a, a good tool for us. Uh, and all I've got to do is find it. So let me see if I've got it here. I think I do. So the uh, URL is utiacapitalprojects.tennessee.edu. And this is uh, what the homepage looks like. And we're still obviously adding content to this website, but uh, you can click on the projects page. And then we've got a couple of the major projects listed here and all, uh, a number of other projects uh, that we'll be adding to over time as well. If you uh, expand the uh, new science building tab, you can see some information about the project. These are some renderings uh, of the project and that'll give you some idea of, of what uh, that building is gonna wind up looking like. We also uh, had uh, uh, great video footage uh, shot from a drone, uh, and I'll, I'll click here, see if we get just a little bit of this. Uh, we tried to document what it looks like now because uh, you know we all take for granted what we have, but we kind of forget about it as, uh, as new construction takes place. So we've documented uh, with some video footage uh, what the current facility looks like, and then we'll be able to contrast that with the new construction in the future. And one, one final point, if you want to sort of see things as they occur, we have a live video feed uh, that's uh, linked off of the homepage right now. And there will be two cameras eventually, but right now there's a live video camera uh, that, uh, that gives an aerial view also uh, of the uh, science building. And you can see uh, this is the, the building itself. And over here you see Hollingsworth Auditorium. Uh, that'll enable us over time just to watch uh, the, the demolition of the building and then watch the construction of the new building as well. So this is a real-time uh, image and, and we'll be able to have a time-lapse uh, view of, of progress over time uh, too. So 
uh, trying to make get some tools together, some information together, just to keep uh, everyone more informed about these. And we'll have some uh, similar information for other capital projects as well. So I'll stop right there on, on building and uh, construction highlights. Uh, and uh, I think Lisa, we're probably ready for some questions then. Yes, and I hope you're ready because we have quite a few today. So first I'll start, I'll start with those related to uh, the construction. Someone has asked, will Chapman Drive close? No, uh, Chapman Drive will not close. Uh, it will probably be down to essentially two lanes. Right now it's a very wide two lanes and it will become most likely a narrow two lanes, but we will continue to have two-way traffic. Joe Johnson uh, will also be impacted and one lane will be closed on Joe, Joe Johnson as well. So around uh, the, the edge of the construction site, uh, we will be extending out and uh, unfortunately that will have an impact, but there's just no other place uh, for the contractor to, to work, stage materials, stage equipment and so forth. So we'll spill out into the, those two streets uh, during, during the construction project. And as far as parking, does it affect uh, parking? You know, I really don't know of any direct impacts this project has on parking. We, we won't be working too much uh, down the hill towards animal science that I know of. Uh, I know Steve Gloffenheim is tied up in a, in a meeting this afternoon. I'd asked him if he had any additional knowledge, but to my knowledge, it won't. I, oh, I see Joe Cagle's with us. Joe, uh, you're, you're recovering from surgery. We appreciate you jumping on today, but have you heard of any parking impacts as a result of the, the science building project? We lost a few spaces directly behind Ellington Plant Sciences along Service Drive, but it's coned off and roped off. That's where they're going to have the construction trailer and some lay down back there. But that's the only thing we've lost to the EESRB. We lost 38 spaces with the uh, teaching and learning centers. So totally we've lost probably about 55, 60 spaces this, this uh, winter. Okay. But that's all we expect to lose though. Thanks, Joe. And I hope you're doing well um, following your surgery. Thank you, I'm, I'm doing well. Good. Great. Well, someone also would like to know if there are any plans to reuse the bricks from these buildings. Uh, now that's a great question. I don't know the answer to that one. <laughs> Maybe we can investigate that one and get back to that person. So great. Well, those are all the questions related to construction. So okay. we'll get back to those that are related to COVID-19. Um, this one is um, concerning faculty and the fact that there are other institutions uh, in other states that are offering some sort of vaccination to um, faculty members. And U UT seems to not be doing that, nor are they even on the list um, of the state's vaccination plan. So any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, in fact, I was uh, in direct conversation with Commissioner Piercy this week. Uh, she's the Commissioner of Health. Uh, and inquiring as to uh, if there may be possibility now that there's more vaccine availability of extending vaccine opportunities uh, to uh, various communities within the university. Uh, she was very adamant that uh, there was a board that, that developed the recommendations that we're following and that they were uh, instructed to follow a very uh, 
strong risk-based approach. In other words, those at greatest risk were at the front of the line and, and continue to be at the front of the line. So she was uh, adamant that uh, we were going to continue to follow the risk-based criteria along with simultaneously the age-based criteria and uh, really not a lot of flexibility there. But she was also quick to point out the, what she thought was good news. So I mentioned we're moving into phase 1C next week, and that includes uh, individuals with underlying health conditions uh, uh, and uh I believe caretakers for and uh, household members of individuals with some of those conditions. Her estimate was that that would make approximately 30% of the adult population eligible regardless of age due to, to the uh, health conditions of individuals or family members. So that was one uh, you know, a positive point she pointed out. And she also said that she was hoping we would move to uh, phase two fairly soon. I kind of got the impression maybe a week or two of phase 1C and then move immediately to phase two, uh, which also then opens it up much more broadly uh, to a wider range of, of uh, adults in particular. So uh, it, we have not uh, been singled out or identified, and that's higher ed in general. It's not just UT. Higher ed was not identified as a high-risk category, uh, but uh, the state is doing everything it can to make vaccines available as quickly as possible, to administer them as quickly as possible. And the university has stood up a vaccine uh, a clinic, uh, generally Thursdays and Fridays. And in the past, uh, I know for those of you off campus, you might say, well, <laughs> doesn't help us uh, understand that. But for those on campus, uh, there have been opportunities for faculty and staff uh, to participate, again, if they were eligible based on risk or age and, and, and receive vaccine uh, here on campus. But that's, they're acting just like another health department site when they ad administer those vaccinations. So it's, it's not um, exclusive to uh, higher education or UT employees, but it is helping to get more vaccine out there. So long-winded answer, I'm sorry, but uh, hopefully that covered the basis. Yes. So then there are a couple of procedural questions that uh, people have. One is, once a person gets fully vaccinated, do they have to continue doing the self-screen, the daily self-screen? No, that's an excellent question. <laughs> I think right now the answer is yes, but I think that's worth, uh, worth considering. The, the challenge is uh, you know, we, we're not going to brand anybody with a big V on their forehead once they've had the vaccine and knowing who's had it and who hasn't had it and cross-referencing. Okay, uh, Lisa Stearns came into work today. She didn't do the health uh, screening, but has she been vaccinated? Are we sure she's been vaccinated? If not, are we comfortable with her being in the office? It, it really creates a lot of uh, logistical challenges. I would say for right now, yes, we're still going to do the self-screening, and uh, that's something that uh, I'll uh, visit with the uh, cabinet about and our leadership team about as well. Okay. And then if someone uh, does obtain a slot for getting the vaccine, and it happens to be during the workday, do they need to take leave to go get that vaccine? Well, I think that the answer to that is probably it depends. So if your appointment is in Orlando, Florida, I think you're going to have to take leave, uh, you know, but if, if it's here 
if it's in your local town, if, you know, if it's in your community and it's a matter of, you know, it's going to take me 30 minutes to run over and get it, I, surely we can work that out uh, and not have to worry about leave under those conditions. And then I, I think, well, what if you go over there and it's a three hour wait and, and you know, what are we going to do? I, I think this is one, remember what we said early on, we were going to be compassionate and we were going to be flexible. Uh, and personally, I want to be supportive. <laughs> I want folks to get the vaccine. So I would ask our supervisors to work with our employees. And if somebody's going to run out locally and get a vaccine, my goodness, let's, let's make that possible and not worry about leave. Uh, this is being recorded. I will probably now be terminated, but, uh, you know, I think we ought to encourage that to happen and be compassionate and flexible, but, you know, let, let's all not take advantage of this too. Uh, we, we don't need to schedule an appointment, uh, at nine o'clock Friday morning and, and then show up again on Monday or, or sign back in again Monday. I mean, let's, let's take care of one another. We all help one another. We're a team. So, uh, I think use good common sense there, but uh, it sure doesn't make sense to take 30 minutes of leave to do something we want you to do. So um, there's another good uh, around the horn answer, but uh, hopefully <laughs> you, I, I'd be glad to answer some follow-ups on that if, uh, if it would be helpful to folks. But just sort of sharing from my heart the way I would want to approach it and the way I would approach it here in my office. Great. And then someone has asked about the policy on mask wearing in the office that this person has noticed that some uh, just never have on a mask. So what is the policy about masks? We haven't changed that policy at all. And, you know, I've, I've probably come back to that again as we close out today, or maybe I can just skip that now. But it's, it's starting to be tempting to think, well, heck, states are uh, lifting mask mandates and, and restrictions are being lifted, restaurants are opening, uh, things must be good, so we, we can let down a little bit and uh, relax some of this stuff. Now is really, in my opinion, not the time to do that, and the university certainly hasn't adopted any, any posture that says, oh, heck, uh, you know, no need to wear masks anymore. So we do still expect masks to be worn. And if individuals aren't wearing them, uh, let's, let's, you know, help one another to be reminded of that. And if that doesn't work, let's, let's ask our supervisors to have a conversation. Uh, we, we don't want to uh, continue to see a, a good trend and then cause it to go the other way by, wearing a mask, by not wearing masks. So uh, they're still required and we should still wear them. And I'll say uh, Dr. Stokes and I paid a surprise visit to Putnam County on uh, on when, uh, Thursday morning, they're probably still recovering from that, um, have us both show up there. But every soul in that building had a mask on. Uh, they were following all the right protocols. So hats off to uh, uh, Putnam County for uh, doing the right things. And, and that's been my experience all across the state. Uh, so let's keep it up. Great. And then several people have asked, um, do we need to register when we receive the vaccine is that, like we did with the flu? At this point, there's no, uh, no requirement for the, vac uh, the uh, COVID vaccination. So there is not a requirement to, to uh, indicate whether you've had it or whether you've asked for an exemption. If that changes, uh, we'll certainly let you know. And then one more guideline question, and that is, are there plans for increasing our meeting maximum attendance of 50 people per meeting? 
th that guidance actually is a result of CDC guidance. So we'll we'll just track uh, CDC on that. And if they increase the numbers, I'm quite confident that we'll uh, align ourselves with any change that CDC makes. So I, I actually think a lot of that is probably being discussed nationally right now. And I think there's a there's a lot of tension. You know, there's this pent up demand to to feel like things are better, we can do more, but then there's also concern that these new variants, uh, which some uh, feel are, are more highly transmissible, uh, could, could result in, in new spikes uh, before we get a greater number of the population vaccinated. So there's a, there's a lot of tension right now about what to do. I'd say just stay tuned, but for right now, we're gonna continue uh, with that 50 person um, threshold but with uh, exceptions allowable for that threshold given appropriate plans. And, and we've seen several of those requested and, and carried off uh, successfully as well. So uh, remember, it doesn't mean they can't be done. It, it does mean though it requires uh, a carefully thought out plan with regard to health and safety and following uh, CDC guidance. Okay. So now we are going to completely switch subjects and uh, this question is regarding um, 4-H and probably thinking to possible uh, camps being instated, reinstated. So um, a parent has asked how we will handle the executive order on gender identity. So specifically, does it mean their daughter could be rooming with a boy who might have chosen to identify as a female? What response should we give to that parent? That's a, a really good question. And, and uh, I don't want to appear that I've got a scripted answer, but to be honest and transparent, that one came in early. Lisa shared it with me. So it, it gave us a little bit of time to, to think about it and me in particular. So I, I don't know about you. I hadn't even read the uh, president's executive order on uh, uh, combating discrimination on the basis of gender identity. So I took the time to do it, uh, just to see exactly what it said and to think about this a little bit. And I'd like to start out in responding to that by reading a couple of uh, sentences out of this uh, executive order. And it's a pretty brief order, it's only a couple of pages, but the very first sentence says, every person should be treated with respect and dignity and should be able to live without fear no matter who they are or whom they love. So, you know, my first, I read that sentence and I thought, okay, we're, we're not opposed to that, right? We, we do believe everyone should be treated with respect and dignity. And then uh, in that same section, it goes on to say, all persons should receive equal treatment under the law, no matter their gender identity or sexual orientation. And again, if, if we're going to treat everyone with respect and dignity, it seems like they are all entitled to, to equal treatment uh, and to... Uh, access to the same services and programs and so forth. So I say all that to say we, we are committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. We're committed to a, a welcoming environment for all of our uh, youth events and for all of our student events for that matter, and certainly in our workplace as well. But we also recognize there's, there are two parties here you know, with concerns, right? There are the those with uh, concerns about whether they'll be discriminated against based on their gender identity. And there are those who are concerned they're exposed to greater risk uh, because of, of their gender identity. So I think we need to, to make sure what we offer in terms of camping experiences or overnight experiences for, for other situations, uh, we need to offer an opportunity for everyone. 
and it, it may look a little different. We may have to make some adjustments, but uh, we, we uh, are committed to serving everyone and, and to re, uh, treating everyone with respect and dignity. So I say all that, and then I say, but 4-H camp is canceled this summer, uh, or at least it's re-envisioned as more of a one-day experience. So uh, that, that means, uh, you know, maybe we've got some time and we can invest a little effort in how we really uh, can implement this across the state uh, and, and be uh, respectful and treat individuals with dignity at any uh, event that in, especially includes overnight uh, residential uh, opportunities. So I think we need to do a little more work there to make sure we're doing the right things, uh, to make sure all parents are, are really supportive of their children attending 4-H camp or attending an overnight camp here at the university whatever the opportunity might be. So I'll, I'll pause right there. And I think Mr. Justin Crow may be on this afternoon, our state 4-H program leader. I've probably dug myself a deep enough hole. I need to uh, extend a lifeline to Justin Crow and invite him to make uh, any marks he'd like to, to, to follow up on my comments. Mr. Crow? Thank you, Dr. Cross. I appreciate that. I've also had a chance to review that executive order. Um, and if folks are interested in knowing more about that, they're welcome to reach out to me or you can just Google it honestly and find it online. But Dr. Cross is exactly right. You know, in 4-H and all we do in UTIA, um, we have opportunities for everybody and we're always gonna treat people fairly and with dignity and respect. And so um, the same will hold true for 4-H overnight events, et cetera. I know some questions have come up in the past very similar to this one. Uh, if you all are out in the counties and have questions or want to talk with me or troubleshoot, uh, feel free to reach out to me at any time. But I can also tell you that Dr. Stokes and I have already talked about uh, this and some other opportunities to ensure that, that we are serving all of you. So uh, while this executive order is pretty specific and in addressing that, you know, people will be treated with respect and dignity and live without fear, that's how we've always operated in 4-H and it's a welcoming place for all young people. So um, we will follow up and have uh, some more guidance and information as we begin to have more overnight types of activities so that we uh, make sure that we are serving all youth. Thanks, Mr. Crow. Great, thank you. Uh, so now we're moving um, back to COVID. <laughs> One uh, question about, um, are we allowed to have guests in our buildings? Yeah, good question. I could say, oh, sorry, we've, we've already done that topic, uh, but uh, we're, we're past COVID, but it's a good question. Uh, we can have guests and visitors, uh, but what we ask is that they complete the health self-check uh, prior to arrival so that we know our guests are healthy. And uh, anybody that's asked for an exception to an event uh, involving 50 or more, we probably asked you to be sure to to use that health uh, self-check form. It's available online and people can complete it in advance on the day of their visit and then put your email address in as the person they're going to visit so that you or, or the supervisor of the office gets a copy uh, and has evidence that, that you're healthy and, and eligible to, to make a visit to our office. So that's the general practice. I know uh, probably uh, at the recs and county offices, there may be some some slight variances to that approach. Uh, you know, it, it may be based on appointments and a conversation about, you know, don't come if you're not healthy and that sort of thing. But overall, the our guidance is uh, visitors, uh, as long as they have 
can be eligible through the health check uh, are, are welcome to visit our offices. Dave White was part of the Emergency Operations Center when that uh, was adopted. Uh, Dave, anything else uh, that you would add to my response there? Uh, Dr. Cross, I think you hit everything um, exactly what I would recommend. There is, if people don't know where that form is, we're happy to get that out to folks. Yeah, good, great question. It looks like uh, Doug Edland uh, has just put that link to that document uh, in the uh, chat box there. And Justin Crowe's put in uh, a link to the executive order if you'd like to read that as well. Like I say, it's only a couple pages, so you might wanna take a look at it. And um, also, um, we just have this shared that there could be slots avail available on campus for vaccine clinics on Monday through Wednesday. Um, you have to qualify according to the county state rules, but um, there is a link and I'll, I'll share that before we end this talk. So just an FYI to everyone. Great. Um, yes. So, um, and now back to construction. Uh, <laughs> will there be a sidewalk for those that park behind the vet school and work in plant biotech? Hmm. I'm trying to remember the image of the construction site and I'm not seeing it. Um, Joe, do you remember uh, whether the sidewalk will be maintained along the edge of the construction site? Yes, they're going to maintain a sidewalk on EJ Chapman on the opposite side. It's going to be on the biosystem side, but that's what the red, the orange barriers are for. We're going to make a sidewalk on that side. So does everybody follow that? It'll be on the other side of the street, but it'll still be there. So uh, you won't get run over by me in the morning when I'm flying up, uh, up the hill to come to the office. It'll be on the biosystem side and it'll be uh, protected by barriers. Great. And um, so our final, <laughs> not really a question. This is more just a lot of comments. And so Keith Barber, you need to uh, listen closely to this one. Um, a number of people have said that alums have been reaching out saying that they would like to purchase bricks. Uh, from these buildings as they are demolished. Oh. And in fact, one university was able to charge quite a bit uh, per piece um, to buy these bricks. So you might get into the brick business, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I, I just wish, but if Butch Jones were still here, we, you know, our <laughs> motto was brick by brick, but. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> So, Joe, you need to get out there and collect those bricks. So. Well, that's a great idea. Uh, can't wait to see that happen, Keith. Someone said ten to twenty dollars. One university was selling those. One even look at Hongwei said fifty dollars per brick. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Shipping's going to be a little expensive, but we'll work that out. Yeah, <laughs> some entrepreneurial person will get out there perhaps and do that. So. Those are all the questions and comments we have for today. So, uh, Tim, any final remarks? <laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, I really appreciate the opportunity to have some dialogue today. Uh, that This was meant to be an exchange of information, and I uh, uh, really appreciate folks asking questions, sharing comments uh, and suggestions. So thank you for doing that. You know, as for COVID, I think we've done a great job, but uh, let's not let up right now. 
we, we need to keep at it. We need to keep doing all the things we've talked about, including wearing masks. So uh, let's, let's not throw the towel in yet. We're getting there, but we need to uh, stay diligent. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, I'd encourage everyone to monitor vaccination opportunities. And as someone did here today, make others aware when those opportunities may be available because we don't all see the same information. So let's take care of one another uh, and one another's families and let them know uh, if there's a vaccination clinic or a, a time slot available so we can help everyone to get through this. And then finally, I, I really do hope everybody has a really nice, sunny, early spring weekend. It looks like uh, a couple of sunny days and I uh, hope you can all take a break, relax, spend some time with, with family uh, and, uh, and get ready for another busy week next week, which I'm sure it will be. That's it, Lisa. Great. Well, thanks everyone for joining us this afternoon and we will be back next month. So we'll see you then.